Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. We're doing a, a slow series through the Ten Commandments, one commandment a week, uh, and that means that we're dotting around the Bible a bit more than we would do usually, uh, in order to see what the whole Bible has to say about these really important words in Exodus chapter 20. So if you could have that open on page 78, that would be a good place to start. Some of the uh, verses that we'll need later will come up on the screen as well, so there won't be too much needing to flick around in the Bibles. But let's now pray and ask for God's help with this particular commandment in front of us this morning. Father, we need your Spirit's help as we look at your words. The Spirit who inspired your servant Moses and who had heard these words on the mountain. Please now speak into our hearts, into our lives. Help us to see what these mean in the light of Jesus Christ, having lived and died and risen and reigning now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at least I've never murdered anybody. That is probably the instinctive response of many people to hearing the sixth commandment. I guess of all the commandments, do not murder is probably the one that we, we think least, least needs to be pointed out in 2023. You know, it, it's just obvious, isn't it? It's wrong. It's still very much a crime murder 
unlike almost all the other commandments, if you think about it. And it's a crime which uh, tends to attract the highest penalties, life imprisonment and so on. So, what is there to say then about this? Well, don't switch off because there is more going on here than we might initially think. The first question to ask is this, what does the commandment actually say? So it might look obvious, it's just four words, isn't it? It's it's hard to miss. Uh, One of the shortest Bible readings we've ever had. So short, we read it twice. But it's even shorter in the original language, it's just two words. Um, Earlier translations translated it as, thou shalt not kill. More recently, it's more normally translated as, you shall not murder. And immediately that raises the question, okay, what, what are we actually talking about in this commandment? So is God saying no to any kind of killing at any point anywhere, which on one level might sound like a good thing to to say, but hang on then, what what about just war? What about self-defence? What about protecting the, the vulnerable from aggressors? What, on the other hand, is this a commandment that gives rise to a kind of Christian pacifism? Is that what we should be seeing from this? Or is the narrower translation of murder more accurate? Well, the answer is somewhere in between the two. There is another more common word in the original language for general killing. So if God wanted to talk about killing in general, the taking of life in any context, it would probably be a different word. So the word doesn't cover the full range of situations where we would use the language of killing in English. But on the other hand, the thing is that the English word murder is, is on the other hand, slightly too narrow. So if we had time, we could look up all the other places where this word that's in this verse is used, and we would see it applies also to what we would call things like manslaughter, kind of unintentional uh, homicide, and that kind of thing. So there is what you might call a minority strand running through Christian history, arguing for pacifism that Christians shouldn't fight in the army and so on. And and there's another massive strand that you may be aware of talking about things like just war. You know, when is it right to go to war? Um, And the circumstances in which um, it it would be right for Christians to engage in that. But really, those are not debates about this verse in the Ten Commandments. That isn't what this verse is about. There may be other discussions to have, but we're not going to focus on that as we think about that this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to take a step back, we're going to think about why murder is wrong in the first place and what that has to say to us now. Then we're going to see how Jesus applies this commandment and actually how he goes far deeper than just a physical act. We heard this in the second reading that he starts to talk about anger and as soon as we're in the realm of anger we know, hang on a minute, this is something that is far more relevant to us even if we think, oh I've never murdered anyone. And then finally, we'll see what it means for Jesus himself to have become, if you like, a murder victim and the implications of that. So you can see on the handout, the little um, uh, outline. First of all, then, the evil of murder, taking what belongs to God. Taking what belongs to God. In the Bible's account of the early history of human beings, it doesn't take long for them to discover murder. So do you know what the first death in the Bible, the first actual recorded death is? It is 
After Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 4, the first death in the Bible is a murder. And Cain kills his brother Abel. And Cain is condemned from the start. But why? Why is it so wrong? Well, we hear a succinct summary in chapter 9 of Genesis. After the flood, as God makes a covenant with Noah and he promises never to flood the earth again, he says this. You can see on the screen. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. The reason it's basically wrong to take human life is that it isn't ours to take. It is God's. When God made Adam and then Eve, God set them apart from the other living things he's made, like animals and birds and fish. So they're different. And in one sense, you think, well, it's, it's okay to take the life of an animal and eat it. But uh, the different, why is it not okay to take the life of a human? Well, because humans are made in God's image. And, and God does something special with humans. He breathes the breath of life into their nostrils. He does that with Adam in the, in the garden. It is clear that humans are different. Humans are in the image of God. Humans belong to God in a special way. God is the giver of life. And throughout the Bible, it's, that it's also clear that because he gives life, well, only he has the right to take it away. Our lives are not in our own hands. Our lives are in his hands. And actually, this has all kinds of implications beyond simply seeing that it's wrong to murder. So do you know that poem, Invictus, by William Ernest Henley? It's often quoted as a symbol of resilience and the indomitable human spirit. And it ends like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Almost certainly heard those words before, but the, the Bible tells us that isn't true. The master of my fate, the captain of my soul, it's not me, it's God. We are his creatures, we belong to him, and life, therefore, is not ours to take. But there's more implications. So for our atheist friends who think, you know, if you, you talk to your friends, your colleagues, your neighbours, I mean, everyone's going to say murder is wrong. Everyone agrees on that. But the question to ask to an atheist who, 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 sort of, who doesn't believe in God is to say, well, then why is it wrong if there is no God? Because if there is no God, then human beings are not made in his image and God has not breathed life into us in any sense. What are we? Well, we're just clumps of atoms. And so is a melon. A melon is also a clump of atoms that have been arranged a bit differently. So what is the difference between putting a knife in a human being and putting a knife in a melon? Now, most human beings know there is a difference. And we won't want to say they're the same thing. We'll be searching for reasons why it is morally wrong to, to, to kill and murder a human being in that way. But if there is no God who has said human beings are in his image and are special and different and that life is his to take, not ours, well, in the end, why is it wrong to take life in that way? And beyond that, when we start to think about it, we realise the more that our wider world leaves God behind, as it were, the more as a wider world we mess with life. 
Now, a couple of years ago, we did a big issue series of sermons where we, we looked at the beginning of life and we looked at the end of life. And we saw how, in different ways, both of those are under attack in our culture. And our, our society's former assumptions about the taking of life in those contexts are no longer taken for granted. So, I don't know if you saw, just, just on Friday, the Crown Prosecution Service issued new guidelines about so-called mercy killings. So they're saying that it's now unlikely that someone will be prosecuted if they help to end somebody's life, if the person wanted to die and the person was putting the person who helped them under emotional pressure to assist them. And this is all in the context of increasing pressure, as you may well be aware, on the government to introduce some kind of assisted dying law. Now, countries like the Netherlands and Canada are much further on than this. And uh, there are laws that have been in place there for a number of years where they've got to the point of, of euthanasia, which is full-on just um, a doctor giving drugs in order to end somebody's life. And in those countries, I mean, this is quite shocking to talk about, if I'm honest, but in those countries, euthanasia is now an accepted treatment for certain mental health disorders. And the statistics show that once these kinds of laws are introduced, the numbers of people asking for assisted dying multiplies fast. And there are all kinds of unspoken, unacknowledged emotional pressures on people not to be a burden to their families and so on. You can imagine the kind of thing. That is where that kind of thing ends up. It starts in a place of saying well, we want to relieve suffering but it ends in a very, very different place which on face value is a very ugly place to be. But here, this, what this commandment is reminding us and pointing to is the fact that no, God is the one who gives and takes life. And we can wrestle with that at times. We can wrestle particularly with the, with the extreme hard cases of people living in pain, of course. But, you know, palliative care improves all the time. And the fundamental principle underlying all of this is that life in all forms is a gift from our creator. It's not a problem. It's a gift. And the fact that God is the one who gives and takes life is not a problem either. It is a comfort that we can rest in him and know that things that feel out of control to us are totally in his control. And actually that can help us too as we face anxiety, maybe, about our own futures. Uh, we can go the other way, you see. It's not that we're tempted to throw life away or take someone else's life in some way. Actually, we can become ourselves kind of terrified of losing our own life. And for some people, that can become a real, it can have a real grip on us. We, f we live in fear of death. And that, that, that affects our behaviour in all kinds of ways. But behind, again, behind this commandment lies that truth that God is the one who gives and takes life. And the Christian knows that that, that God in, in, in whose hands we are is a God we can trust. Our lives are in his hands. So let me tell you about John Payton. I don't know, John Patton, John Payton. He was a missionary to Aniwa in the Pacific Ocean. 
and it was a dangerous place to be a missionary. This is the sort of 19th century. Uh, because the native inhabitants of this island were cannibals. And so one concerned friend to him, as he was heading off to this, this island, one concerned friend to him said to him, don't go, you, you, you will be eaten. But Peyton replied to his friend, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, he, he basically said this, he said, you're an old man, and you'll soon be lying buried in the ground, being eaten by worms. It makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms, because there is a day of resurrection coming. And later, as he recounted being surrounded by people who looked to be on the verge of killing him and his companion in a, in a particular incident, he said this, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realised that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. Isn't that a great way of thinking about it? We are safe in the hands of the God who gives and takes life. We are safe in his hands. We are immortal till his work with us is done. Isn't that a comfort? Because he is the one who gives and takes life. Can we trust him? Well, you tell me. What do we know about his love for his people? He sent Jesus into the world to live and die and rise. We can put our faith in him. And that confidence is what lies behind this sixth commandment and is what makes murder evil when it's done. But there is more. There's much more to say because we heard in the second reading then from the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus showing how murder is not just about the action but about the heart. And in the heart of the murderer is anger. And as we said before, anger is something we all know about, all experience, all are guilty of misusing, if we're honest. So let's see, secondly then, the heart of murder, anger and disordered love So, where have we got here? That is uh, the wrong verse. There we go. Give me one second. All right, we'll, we'll turn to Matthew in our Bibles, if that's okay. So, Matthew chapter 5. There we go. Oh, that's come up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. So, uh, you have heard it, verse 21. You've heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And so suddenly, we're all involved. Because we might be able to say we've never murdered somebody, never murdered anyone, but we've imagined it. And we've longed for a nasty end 
for someone who is causing us pain. And it is that kind of anger which, left uncontrolled, gives rise first to physical violence and then finally murder. Now, uh, when we got married, Sue and I, the vicar who was marrying us said this, Congratulations. You are now sitting next to the person statistically most likely to murder you. (laughs) Now, I've taken a few weddings myself as a vicar. It's not a line I've chosen to use myself in weddings. I didn't say that when I married Daniel and Sarah on Wednesday. But it is apparently the case that if, God forbid, you are going to be murdered, it is most likely to be by a member of your own family, And of all the days in the year, the most likely is Christmas Day, they say. Happy Christmas. Now, I don't know if that's completely proven, but you you can believe it, can't you? And and, and to be honest, one of the reasons that I wouldn't use that line in a wedding is because actually it it isn't really very funny, although it's kind of so startling to hear. But actually we know, don't we? We know domestic violence, for example, is a real thing. And behind the more occasional murders that kind of make the headlines are far more cases of violence, against women especially. But it can be the other way around as well. And and it starts with anger, doesn't it? And it's a real thing, even if we're honest, even sometimes occasionally among Christians. And, And we need to be able to say to one another, it's okay to talk about that. Now, as I speak like up here, I I never know who might be listening, whether that's in here or online or at a later date. And it's just worth saying, isn't it? We we, we have contact details for people who would like to talk to somebody about that. Um, We have, uh, there's there's things downstairs actually in the loos on the wall. Um, There's details on our website with the safeguarding details, if that is an issue. But let's get behind this, you see. What exactly is anger? What is going on? in our hearts when we burst out in anger. The the American preacher Tim Keller called anger love in motion. Now, you might think that's a very weird way to talk about anger, love in motion. What does love have to do with anger? Well, the the point, the way to think about it is, is like this. First of all, not all anger is wrong. So, uh, you know, the the example we often think of is when Jesus angrily overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple, well, that was anger at sin against his father and and ultimately against him as God the Son. It was love for God that provoked that response. So that the heart of anger is saying, that's not right and things need to change. Okay? Okay? That's kind of what anger is doing, what the emotion of anger is doing. That's not right, things need to change. The problem, though, and it is a huge problem, is that our love is disordered. So we do not love what God loves, and we do not hate what God hates. Very often, in fact, we hate what God loves, and we love what God hates. And so very often, what the result of that is, When we are angry and we're saying that's not right and things need to change, we're directing that at something which is completely inappropriate. 
and we do it therefore in a completely inappropriate way. And it is in that sense a disordered love. Uh, it, it, very often, if you think about it, it is, it is out of love for ourselves, isn't it? That's what's going on in anger. That's not right because it hurts me and therefore things need to change and so we burst out. The heart of that is a disordered love for self rather than love for God. Because we love ourselves, we love an easy life. And when someone gets in the way of that, love for self gets in motion. Do you see? That's not right. Things need to change. Suddenly we're shouting and screaming or worse. And if that's true and if we know that in our own lives, how much do we see that in the world around us as well? And increasingly in a world polarised, divided, where the first, not the last response, the first response to kind of provocation is anger and shouting and ranting, whether that's online, Twitter and all, all that goes on in those kind of spaces or, or just in personal relationships, in, in, in discussions about politics where it used to be possible for people with opposing opinions just to have a, a, a reasonable conversation with one another and in one sense that feels no longer to be the case. We know that this is so relevant to where our, our world is at and where our friends and our neighbours and our colleagues are at as well as in our own households and as well as in our own hearts. This is a problem. So what is the solution? That's when we need to come thirdly to the God who was murdered and finding forgiveness and a fresh start. So God the Son took on flesh and became a man. And what did people do to him? Well, Acts 2 verse 23 tells us, it says this. This man, that's talk, this is Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost, talking about Jesus. And he says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, in saying that Jesus, you know, who's God on earth as a man... In, in saying that he was murdered, we need to be clear what we mean by that. He's not a typical murder victim. Because the Bible is very clear that his death was not in fact against his will. He was willingly obeying his father as he went to the cross. He was active in his obedience. He wasn't a passive victim being dragged against his will. So as much as the Bible speaks about things being done to Jesus, it also is clear that there's a the sense in which Jesus was giving himself up. Even, even as he, at the final, John's Gospel, even as he dies, he gave up his spirit. It's an active thing that Jesus is doing, which is different from a kind of a, a, a tragic case of, of human murder. And even more than that, if you think about it, I mean, this is Jesus, he is God. What's happening is, as he is put to death in that way, he's actually continuing to uphold the universe, even as they drove the nails into his hands and pierced his side and watched him die. He, he is upholding and sustaining the hands that are doing that to him. Isn't that extraordinary to, to think about that? 
So when we say he was murdered, we don't mean that in exactly the same way as we do in other contexts. And that's probably why that phrase is not a very common way to think about Jesus' death. But nevertheless, that there is a sense that Jesus was put to death. That those who crucified him, the Romans and the Jewish leaders, were responsible for what they did. From their perspective, what they were doing was murder. And the Bible is clear, actually, if we had been there, we would have done the same. Man, given the chance, will murder his maker, people say. So this, um, this picture here, this painting, is a painting I've shown, I think I've shown before, if you've been here before. It's a, it's a painting by the artist Rembrandt, Dutch painter. And what he's done in painting this picture of the, of the crucifixion is that that man with the blue hat and the blue at the foot of the cross is a self-portrait of Rembrandt. Because he's making a point. If I had been there, I would have done this. Because that is what human beings are like. This is a human problem. That is what I'm like. So what do we do with that? Is there any hope for angry, murderous human beings? Well, the hope comes a few verses later in that speech that Peter was making in Acts chapter 2. The people listening, they hear that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Peter says to them. And their response is to say, well, what should we do? They're kind of saying, well, surely we're done for then. The man that we crucified um, is going to be our judge. What are we going to do? But Peter says, no, there is a way back to the God that they and we have rejected. He says this, he says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You say, what? What's that forgiveness? For, for anyone, for every one of you, he says, even for murderers. That's a scandal. Where can there be justice in that? But of course it's because the innocent Jesus willingly died in the place of anyone who will put their trust in him. He was willingly murdered, if you like. So justice has been done. The punishment has been taken by Jesus in the place of sinners like us. But then there's more. Because Peter continues, when you, when you repent and, and believe, put your trust in Jesus... In the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says. So for, if you're a Christian today, and anger is something you still experience, which, if we're honest, will be true in different ways for all of us. What is the solution to anger in our hearts? It is to be united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit as we put our faith in him to find our sins forgiven and to receive the gift of new life. Because the point is, I can't resist the anger in my own heart. I can't sort out the passionate anger that comes out of nowhere when the right buttons are pushed. Can you? But united to Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is the possibility of change as we live a new life. So, 
the, some of the women were on the Women's Day yesterday looking at the book of James. The book of James has a few things to say about anger as we think about what that life, that new life looks like. Let me just point us to a couple of them. That's not James. Here we go. Um, James 1, 19 to, uh, to 20. He says, my dear brothers, brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So what is James saying there? How do we become less angry with God's help, united to Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit? Stop speaking and start listening. That's what James is saying there, isn't it? Stop speaking and start listening to each other. For a start, how many arguments are caused because we won't first stop and really listen to what the other person is saying? And the other uh, perspective on listening is, of course, to listen to God, to, to get to know him better, to focus on him more and more and ask him to deal with this problem in our hearts. James then later in the letter says this, uh, James chapter 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now there's a lot going on in those verses, but what he's saying is the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, as is often said. The problem of wars and arguments starts in the human heart. And the solution, he's saying, is to ask. Ask God. Pray, in other words. And then as he puts it a few verses later, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, when it comes to dealing with anger and murderous thoughts, our, our response so often is to justify ourselves, isn't it? To explain away. To say, the reason I was angry was this, this and this. Because of you know, external provocation. Um, and that is why I responded in that way. But actually, if the problem is really in our hearts, in the end, the way out is the way down. is to humble ourselves before the Lord, to say, to own, that was wrong. To respond in that way. Yes, there might have been provocative circumstances, but the way that I have responded was wrong. And I need to ask for forgiveness. Because disordered love has turned in on myself. And that responds in anger when it's threatened. <clears throat> but that disordered love is put right <clears throat> when the focus, excuse me, when the focus of our love returns to the God who made us and loved us first, even while we were still sinners. So there's a lot of practical advice out there about anger, isn't there? You take a deep breath, have a glass of water. Acknowledge what you're feeling, spot the warning signs, save the ranty email in your drafts for 24 hours and see if you still want to press send on it 24 hours later. All those sorts of things. 
But the best thing above all that we can do is to refocus ourselves on the God who became a man and allowed his life to be taken in anger. When our reputation is under threat, when we're wounded by the words and actions of others, when we're treated in a way we don't deserve, when we're mocked, when we're taken for granted, we're treated like a doormat, when we are in pain at the hands of others, our temptation in all of those times is to anger and murderous thoughts. But know, know this, the Son of God suffered all of this and worse. And he did it for us. And when our love and our passions are fixed back onto him where they belong in response to what he's done as we see the depths to which he stooped, what he endured at the hands of other human beings, that is when our anger will begin to melt away. It's often been said it's very, very difficult to stand at the foot of the cross and gaze on a crucified saviour, if you like, imagine that, and remain angry with whatever the situation is that we're cross about, as we see what was done to him, as we see that he did that for us, as we see that one day he will make all things right. We gaze on him, our hearts, our affections are drawn away from ourselves onto him. And that is the way that step by step, day by day, our anger will melt away. And then we will not murder. Well, let's pause and pray now. Father God, as we've thought this morning about how you are the one who gives and takes life and how we so often love what you do not love and we turn our hearts and our own love not away from you and onto ourselves and respond in anger. We humble ourselves before you. We thank you for all that Jesus suffered and endured without reprisal as he willingly went to the cross and died. And as we gaze on him, would you change our hearts so that our love is ordered back to you and we live in a way that honours and glorifies you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.